This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, February 13, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Before we get started today, I have an announcement to make. When you think of elections, you may be tempted to think about the big one, the main canon, the midterm, coming up on November 8th of this year. Yes, that is a significant one, but there are other elections that, as a responsible citizen, you need to consider. Yes, there are the primaries, which take place at different dates depending upon what state you live in, let's focus on the elections closer to home, you know, the ones that are more likely to have an effect on your day-to-day life. I'm talking about municipal elections. This is where you get to vote for members of your school board, county seats, judges, vacant positions in your state house, and various other people and issues that affect your local community. School boards, for example, are getting a lot of attention lately, and they need new members. In fact, in just a couple minutes, we'll spend some time with Philip Caldwell, who's running for a school board position. In April alone, there are a number of school board elections in Missouri and Oklahoma and California. I personally urge you to take action now and register to vote now. Don't just wait and vote in the November election because by that time it's too late to make your voice heard on a local level. Regarding Missouri, the League of Women Voters would like to remind you that in April, voters will be electing people who will make decisions about your public schools, your neighborhood housing regulations, local public transportation and roads, public safety, and more. When you vote in local municipal elections, you bring attention to issues important to you and your neighbors. Now is the time to get registered to vote or check your voter registration. The deadline to be registered to vote in the April 5 election here in Missouri is March 9. Keep in mind, we're talking about Missouri. If you're in Oklahoma, for example, the deadline is 25 days prior to the election. Please check your local state guidelines for information specific to your area. Anyways, back in Missouri, if you know that you will not be able to make it to the polls on Election Day, request your absentee ballot now. The League of Women Voters of Metro St. Louis wants every voice to be heard in elections and is here to help. If you have questions about elections, how to register, or how to request an absentee ballot, reach out to the League of Women Voters on their website at lwvstl.org. That's lwvstl.org, or call the League Voter Hotline at 314-961-6869. Again, that's 314-961-6869. Hey, be a voter. Today we're talking with Philip Caldwell, who is currently running for the Board of Education in Parkway Schools in an upcoming election on April 5. The Parkway School District is located in West St. Louis County, Missouri. The district has 17,500 students, which consists of 18 elementary schools, five middle schools, and four high schools. And all four high schools are among the top 15 in the state, by the way. Parkway serves a suburban area adjacent to the Rockwood School District, 
If you recall, the Rockwood School District received national attention recently over controversies related to diversity and equity education. The topic of, of critical race theory is on fire all across the nation, particularly here in the Midwest, where accusations of school-sponsored indoctrination into social activism and Marxism plays prominently in fractious political discussions. These arguments get really heated at school boards across the nation, complete with violence and death threats. So Philip Caldwell was actually born here in uh, St. Louis County and graduated from high school in 2003. In college, he majored in music education and, and then moved to Los Angeles, California. After meeting his fiancée, he moved to Seattle for a time, got married, and then eventually moved back to the Midwest just in time for the pandemic. Philip believes in the value of public education and wants to do everything he can to keep all students and staff safe, healthy, and in school. He's committed to reaching out and engaging with the diverse population of his area in an honest and transparent manner. So, Philip, uh, thank you for joining us and welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Um, I got to I got to correct one thing in that Uh-oh. mini bio you did, sure. which was impressive, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> OK, but I moved back mid pandemic. Oh, mid pandemic. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's a tough. We time had to uh, we had started making plans. Um and then, and then, you know, the world sort of shut down and we thought, do we keep going with it? Do we, do we push forward? And, and yeah, so in the summer of 2020 is actually when, when we drove across the country at, uh, to, to see our house for the first time that we bought. So wow. wow. Yeah. That's pretty good challenge for you then. That was before we could even get vaccinations, right? The summer of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, we, we had this whole grand, uh, you know, plan that we were going to, come back and see all of our friends and hang out and everything. And then, and, and before that we were going to make a fun road trip and see the sights between Seattle and St. Louis. And, mm-hmm. and it really ended up turning into just get as far as we can get to a hotel, hunker into the hotel, like it's a bomb shelter and order some takeout food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that feeling. I've taken enough road trips to know what that feels like, but it's gotta be much worse even during the, during the pandemic, I would think. It was want to be really careful. Just finding restaurants that would even, you know, serve, food at that point in time was actually still a challenge. Yeah. Wow. Well, you're quite the trooper there. Um, So I want to ask you a question, though, in light of all the controversy that seems to be hitting every school board in the nation, I mean, it's easy for one to conclude that school board members work in a sort of a combat zone, for lack of a better term. And working on a school board used to be a fairly straightforward, if not outright boring job. I mean, I remember attending a few of these meetings back uh, when my son was going to high school back in Los Angeles a few years ago. And um, for me, it was difficult to, you know, not fall asleep. But uh, these days, boy, oh boy, <laughs> has that changed. I mean, it's almost like you need to wear an army helmet to these meetings. And so what on earth would make you want to jump into this environment? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, all of that is spot on. Um, even at the Parkway District Board uh, meetings, um, and, and the answer is twofold. First off, the easy part is, uh, my wife and I also started a family when we moved out here. So I've got a, a seven month old daughter, Eileen Harper Caldwell. Um, we are already enrolled in Parkway district. They have a lot of amazing early childhood programs. Um, so we're enrolled in one called parents as teachers, where we're going to have a parent who is, who is a teacher as well, um, coming and, and doing a home visit and, you know, we'll see what that home visit is like. If, if the weather's nice, maybe outside, if not, it'll be on zoom. Mm-hmm. And, 
they're going to go with us, go over things with us, you know, to find out if Eileen's meeting certain, you know, developmental goals and things that we can do with her to help her reach those developmental goals and things like that. So we're already part of the district. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and she's going to be a Parkway graduate, you know, 17, 18 years from now. So Mm -hmm. it's important to me that the district stays a destination district, you know, like when we moved here, one of the reasons we settled on this house was because it was within the Parkway school district. So that was very important to us. And so that's the first, you know, clear reason. The second reason, as you said, I moved away at a period of time. And whenever I told people out on the West coast that I was from St. Louis, I don't know how many times I've heard people say something like, Oh, bet you're glad you got out of there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I got the same thing. Yeah. I moved out of St. Louis too, quite a few years earlier, but yeah, I did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, And it was one thing that I just, I never understood. I loved St. Louis. I thought St. Louis had so much to offer. It was a great city. I didn't move out because I was trying to escape it. I moved out, you know, for audio engineering for a, 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 you know, study and, and career reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just never understood that sentiment. And, and I was so mad. Like the first time I had to pay for a zoo somewhere, I didn't realize that that was a thing. Like <laughs> St. Louis just has so much to offer and it's not a flyover city in my opinion. And yeah. so I always said, you know, when I came back, I was going to get involved. I wanted to give back to the community. I wanted to get started at the ground roots and, and just really help show what this city and and all of the things you know that it has to offer i wanted to make st louis and in in a greater sense missouri i wanted it to be thought of as something more than just a flyover city or a flyover state Mm -hmm. um when when i went up to seattle with my wife it was because she was accepted to the university of washington's masters in teaching program she's a fifth grade teacher now in st louis public schools uh, my dad worked, uh, he was the director of student data for a special school district for decades. Um, and my grandmother was a public educator in St. Louis public schools for decades and decades earlier too. And like you mentioned, I was a music ed major. I, I taught music, I taught private lessons. I think that public school education is just something that is centered around my family. Mm-hmm. And it's very important. And I think it is really the start of just so much more for a city and for a state and for a community. And so when I saw that there were a couple board uh, positions available this, you know, this election, um, and I knew I wanted to get back involved with the community, I just sort of thought that this was the stars aligning. This was really the situation that made the most sense for me to start and and get involved. This was your moment. But, you know, as I mentioned before, there are a lot of emotions that are flying high over school issues and schools have been caught recently in the middle of the culture wars going on in the U.S. And so a lot of these issues going on in school really have nothing to do or a lot of these, a lot of these controversies, I should say, have nothing to do with schools. But nevertheless, schools are there uh, in the middle of it. So what unique qualities and, or, and, and ideas uh, are you going to bring to the table to help? turn the temperature down and get people refocused on education. Well, one now I'm, (laughs) I've done a complete 180. Um, I'm still playing music when I can, not nearly as much during a pandemic, but um, for, for the nine to five, I'm now an accountant actually. Hmm. Um, So I'm a homeowner in the district and I'm an accountant. I understand one of the most convoluted things that board of education members need to wrap their heads around, which is, 
the budget and the spending of a school district. There's right. so many different formulas and aspects that go into it. And that is something that I'm literally steeped in day to day for my normal job. Um, so I believe that that's one of the characteristics that I'm bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, that I think is really important, um, especially for a district like Parkway, is inclusion and reflecting the diverse population that you know its students represent. Um, but you don't always see that at all levels of a school district, the, the support staff, the teachers and educators and the administrators. Um, so one idea that I've had is in St. Louis, we have an HBCU right here in the city. When my wife was uh, getting her master's in teaching, her school, UW, was partnered with the Highline School District. Mm-hmm. Um, UW's program was very geared towards uh, a social justice sort of uh, giving back kind of vibe. It was very sure. much about how can we help these communities that are struggling. So it partnered with districts where the majority of students were on free or reduced lunch program. Why don't we partner as Parkway with an HBCU that's located in the same city? And when their student teachers come to us and get familiar with this, with the schools and the staff and the administrators, they're also going to know firsthand what jobs are available, what positions are available, and they're going to be applying for those jobs. So I think that, you know, partnering with Harris Stowe University here in St. Louis would be one of the first easiest steps to help create a more diverse population among the educators within the district. So and now that you mentioned that you're an accountant, um, let's talk about something somewhat related, which is the, the economics of schools. Um, you know, teachers in Missouri, as you, I'm sure you know this by now because your wife is a teacher, uh, teachers <laughs> in Missouri are, are the last, uh, the last poll I heard. They're the last in the nation in terms of pay. I believe that uh, their starting salary is somewhere around just shy of $33,000 per year, which is about 20% less than the national average, which is about 40, just a little bit over $41,000 per year. So uh, what can you do, or is there anything you could do, say, as a board member to help increase the pay uh, for teachers and or bring more resources to bear? So luckily, Parkway, you're, you're, first off, you're very right. Uh, Missouri is at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to the average teacher salaries. Um, statewide, the average salary is just over fifty-one thousand. Um, mm-hmm. So that includes, you know, all of Kansas City and, and, and St. Louis, which are probably paying a little bit higher. Um, but even then, Parkway at least is above the the state average. the The average salary for a regular term uh, educator at Parkway is seventy-one thousand. So that's, that is a good first step. Um, and Parkway is doing a lot of very financially sound practices in their budget process and everything like that. One of the very first meetings I tried to have um, and, and, and did have, I should say, was with Patty Bedborough, the CFO of the district. Because um, mm-hmm. I figured, you know, as an accountant, I should have an understanding of what's going on financially. Um, so I met with her for about an hour and a half, very informative, very good meeting. She's an incredible uh, uh, financial mind herself. Mm-hmm. So that isn't something that terribly worries me. I think what I would be first and foremost concerned with is making sure that they continue those strong practices that they've put into place, um, making sure that before we 
take on additional debt or bond, you know, with bond issues or anything like that, that we first look at what we do have. Do we need to take on all of that debt or can we dip into uh, the, you know, 2% reserve that we've been, you know, making sure to hold back sort of in case of a rainy day, Um, looking at things like that. The other thing that I think is an interesting issue that I would want to bring up to the board and, 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 and brainstorm with is, um, I, I spoke with the Parkway NEA members as well. And one of their first things that they said is, you know, we feel like we've been taken care of. We feel like we're valued. Um, but right now, we, I think that, that there is a need for more support and more support staff. And that was one of their concerns. So I would want to take a look at that. You know, the bus drivers, the educators, the food service workers, all of those people are just as integral to a properly running um school district sure and while it is a school district it is a government entity it is they don't have to follow all the same rules that private businesses do Mm -hmm. you do have to realize that we're still in the society that we're in and there's still a competitive job market and we still have to be part of that job market and make sure that we're competitive enough to attract those different people to attract the different support staff the different educators the different administrators and not only get them in the door, but then retain them mm-hmm. because that retention is so important too. So I think yeah. that if we looked at, can we, you know, the, for a long time, there was the whole $15 minimum wage push. Sure. Um, there's, there's a couple of Amazon warehouses, not far behind or not far around for us. And, and their minimum, I think is now up to 18. Mm-hmm. So we have to realize that we're in a competitive job market. And so if we want to get people, in those positions and retain them, we're going to have to play a competitive, pay a competitive wage as well. And so I'm thinking that maybe what would it take to get a 15 minimum wage across all positions within the school district, not just, you know, the educators, but also some more of the support staff. But there's this push lately, and and you were out of the state for a while, so was I. Uh, I returned uh I think to the state back in 2014-ish, you just came back, I guess, a couple of years ago. Um, there's been this push, which, which which I learned about after I got back here, was that um, politicians, I, are, I believe, are trying to defund our public schools, and they're using any excuse. So COVID seems to be a good excuse. Uh, CRT, which we can talk about that shortly, uh, seems to be another another battering ram that they're using. Uh, do you believe that politicians are attempting to defund our schools in favor of funding private schools or charter schools or parochial schools or maybe even homeschooling? I not only believe it, I know it. Um, just the other day, I was going through uh, one of the House bills, House Bill 1552C. Um, my wife actually asked me a question about that and and asked me to give her a summarization for it. And basically, it was going to that house bill would require districts to pay charter schools for any students that were going to those charter schools that if the school lies within the district boundary, the district has to pay the charter school a proportion of funds for those students. Mm -hmm. One, it's a clear, you know, redirection of funds away from the public system into the charter system Two. It when I what I was reading about it did not take into account anything like if a 
let's just say a parent wants to drive their student all the way from Wentzville into St. Louis City to go to a St. Louis City charter school. St. Louis Public School isn't getting the local revenues from that family, those tax dollars and things like that, but they would still have to pay the charter school for that student that's coming out, that's coming in mm. from an outside district area. Sure. Oh. So I didn't see any safeguards of that. Now, I, I, I didn't look at the full formula to decide how much per student it was going to have to pay, but if it's not taking into account things like that, and it's already reproportioning funds, it, it, it's just a clear tactic to try to beef up the other school options. And unfortunately, that can only come at, with, right now at the expense of the public school system. And that is very scary, especially for a district like St. Louis Public Schools um, that, that is having already a lot of problems with turnover, with staffing, with with the teacher pay that we were talking about before. And if you remove funds and resources from them in that manner, it's just going to exasperate the problem. And you're going to have less parents feeling comfortable about sending their students there. Yeah. If you don't send your student there and you send them to a different option and those public funds are going to those other options because of that, well, it, the problem is going to just exacerbate and exacerbate. Yeah. Well, there's this argument about having money follow the student. You you came up with that uh, that um, example of a student living out in Wentzville, which uh, for everybody that are listening here, Wentzville is probably about what forty miles uh, west of St. Louis. Somebody driving all the way, you know, forty miles east into the city to drop their kid off at school. But if the money follows the student, I mean, that's one of the arguments out there, right? Have the money follow the student, so no, ma- no matter where the student goes that money would be there for them. So if they go to a public school, hey, the public school gets the money. If they go to the private school, the private school gets to the money, gets the money. But what's what's your counter argument to that? Well, the private schools already getting the money because the private schools come with a tuition. Um parents are making a choice that they would want something different for their students. Um and so they are going to do that. And that's mm-hmm. fine. And that is that is their right. That is their option. Um, but in making that choice, they are also paying for that student to go to that school. Um, it the the way that our system is built is very it, it's very balanced right now on like just the edge of a knife. Um, and so the schools are already running with not all of the resources that they really need or should have in most cases, especially in underserved areas and, and, and those districts that already have a number of challenges facing them. Mm-hmm. When you decide to take a student out of the public system, the public system loses money already because a lot of the st- the way that they're getting money from the state and the federal funds for those students is by what I call butts and seats. So you're removing a a butt out of the seat and you're putting them over here. So now the school loses some of their state and local funding already. The parents are paying the school that they chose to put that student in for the education. Mm -hmm. Now, if we're also taking those, the, the state and local fund, you know, the mainly the local taxes, like the sales taxes and the property taxes and things like that, and now we're taking those funds and we're also moving them over to the, the private school. 
Well, the, the public education school has now lost even more money from that student not attending them, attending there. If this house bill that I just mentioned went into effect, it would lose money again because it would have to actually pay the charter school or private school. And then you're also, um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking out there for a second. So one, yeah. we're, we're moving. No, I, I hear you. And, and to, just to kind of add to your formula there, too, and I'm, I'm digging back into my own memory, which is a scary thing to do, but um, there was a statistic I read at one point, I believe it was somewhere around 120,000 students in Missouri are already going to private schools. And so if you immediately now take the money from the, the that's allocated for public schools uh, to fund these students and have the money follow those students, and immediately you're going to lose uh, over $700 million per year out of the public school system because of the kids that are already in private school. So now you're, you're just basically taking a big chunk of money. So I see where your argument is going there, and I, 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 um, I, that's been my argument too. I just kind of wanted to uh, see where you were going with that as well, and it sounds like uh, you're on the same wavelength here. Um, let's shift gears a little bit, though, because, you know, I alluded to earlier the uh, uh, at the top of the podcast that schools have become somewhat of a of a of a war zone in, in, in a nationwide culture war. And why, why do you suppose that schools are getting in the middle of all this? Because one side has figured out that. The culture war is really. The most. uh I'd say effective and sustainable if it starts at the grassroots. And I will say that that side has is, is well ahead of the other side, as far as getting people into local um, elected positions all across the state and city levels. And they've been using those very local um, elected positions as almost like a, a farm team for your baseball you know, franchise. Mm -hmm. And that has been how they've been grooming different uh, elected people and, and politicians is by first having them run for something very grassroots, like a school board or another city position, you know, a city council member um, or even like a small city mayor. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they've been helping them, grooming them and, and pushing them through the system until they get to the very top levels. I would say that the other side has not been. Right. Um, the school board in St. Louis, you know, that is a, a, a I always joke and call it a non-denominational position. Um, and it's supposed to be neutral, right? Because it's not supposed to be political, mm -hmm. but it has been the, the larger culture war from the national scale has been, filtering down, filtering down, filtering down. We've heard Steve Bannon urging, urging parents to go to their school boards and demand these, you know, different things. Sure. We've heard, uh, what is, what is his name? Somebody Jones. Oh, oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The crazy guy, the one that yells yeah. all the time. Yeah. God, my, yeah. My mind uh, goes blank every time I turn the microphone on. So, I try, I try to forget about him. He's done the same thing. He's urged yeah. more and more parents to go to school boards and, and city council things. And, 
and you know demand their their culture war sort of uh situations on these schools and let's face it like parkway is a k through 12 school district mm-hmm. crt which has been at the heart of a lot of these you know the the war zone thing that you're talking about that is a graduate level theory taught in law schools like right. as far as i know Parkway does not have a law school affiliated with it. So there's no, there is no critical race theory being taught. Right. Um, and now of course that's just become a, a more, uh, it's like the Kleenex versus tissue sort of thing where now CRT just means anything that has to do with race in America at all. Um, but it, that's, right. I think what has really happened is, is one side has really been, smart about starting at the grassroots level and grooming and, and finding out who is a, a true believer. And the other side has not thought about it as, as, as critically and as urgently um, at that level right. as the other side. And I, so I think it's, it's feels a little one-sided mm-hmm. because it's just been one side that's really focused on that local hyper-local level. Yeah. Yeah, I think it makes sense what you're saying, too, about building everything up from the grassroots, because if if you're going to build up a national movement, it makes sense to start at the grassroots. And, and where, where are those grassroots located? All those local offices, right? The school boards, the county exactly. boards, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I so I was going to um, let's talk about diversity and, and equity, because, yeah, I know that nobody right now is really teaching uh, critical race theory as that college level course that was developed by Dr. Bell back in the late 1970s. But we have to face the fact that the definition of critical race theory has been repurposed. It's been hijacked. You know, Christopher Rufo was, I think, one of the primary people that were pushing that. And so now the definition of critical race theory, I think, as you alluded to, it, it, it's, it means anything, any sort of training in subjects that um, um, to be brutally honest about it, it, makes white people uncomfortable. And it's a, and I think this is somewhat relevant in the Parkway School District because we know that the suburbs in and around the St. Louis area are becoming increasingly diverse, particularly your area up there. I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with it. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we talked to um, Trish Gunby, who's running for Congress and representing that area. And she said, yes, it's, the last 10 years is becoming far more diverse. So, but here's the thing. I actually believe that most people, majority of people, believe in the concepts of equity and diversity. And, but there is this substantial concern that these ideas are going too far. There's this thing called wokeness, for example, which was another repurposed term, for example, that's being used to uh, indoctrinate children into either what the, the, the term of wokeness, I should say, is being used as a term to indoctrinate children into either becoming social warriors or Marxist ideology or at the very least, accepting preconceived notions of superiority uh, based upon your skin color. Um, And you mix into that this other thing called white fragility, which describes the defensiveness that uh, white people exhibit when their ideas about race and racism are challenged, and particularly when they feel that they're being implicated in white supremacy. So you have a tremendous amount of anxiety in society these days. It's been here all along, but, but with race, it's becoming an explosive issue. And it's being blown way out of proportion. So it's touching a lot of the collective nerves of a lot of parents and it's bringing out the worst in a lot of parents. So 
let's talk about there for a little while. You know, besides putting on an army helmet, I mean, what do you, how do you plan to navigate your way through this minefield? The biggest thing I think we all need to do is stop and listen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's easier said than done. I understand. But that tends to be the first step every time and the most successful step every time. And if you can stop and listen and make sure that the other person can, it it knows that they are being heard. Mm -hmm. It's going to bring them, it's going to make them more willing to come to the table. And when you actually stop and listen, not only is that other person feeling heard, but you can understand and address those concerns as well. Um, And that goes for both sides. You know, we're talking about white fragility. You know, why, why are you feeling attacked for being white? Mm -hmm. Like, what is that? Okay. I'm sorry. That's not what we meant. Um, Right. And also, you know, talking to somebody of another race, like, why do you feel attacked? Oh my God. I didn't even know that. I'm sorry. That's not what I meant. Um, and I think that that's one of the first and foremost things that needs to happen on both sides across the board at all levels, grassroots up to the, you know, uh, Senate, right? We just, there needs to be somebody that will actually just first take a moment, take a step back and listen, because I, I, I'm a white male. I get it. It sounds probably kind of weird coming from me, but I think. You know, I don't feel attacked when somebody talks about there being systematic racism in this institution, whatever that institution is. I don't feel personally attacked because I've stopped and I've had these conversations and I've sat down at a table and broken bread with enough people who we all respected each other enough to be able to have an open conversation about those things. And I can understand that there is a problem. Um and I might be, I might fit in with the demographic of that problem, but they don't look at me as if I am the problem. Mm-hmm. And so that makes me feel like I can have more open conversation. I can ask questions without seeming, in, you know, inconsiderate or, or you know, just willfully ignorant about it as well, because they know that I'm coming at it from a place of respect as well. So it allows me to ask questions. It allows me to try to explain things from a different angle that they might not be seeing as well, as well as it gives me just so much more understanding of where they're coming from and the things that they have dealt with, because I'm not dealing with those things firsthand. I don't have the same interactions as (laughs) I don't have the same interactions as my own wife, who's a Vietnamese American woman. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of times where we literally are sitting down at our dinner table, having these conversations with each other. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is the first and foremost thing that, that needs to happen again, is just taking a step back, taking a breath and listening to each other. And unfortunately that just does not seem to be happening as much as, as it, I, I think it used to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, there's this organization called Braver Angels. I don't know if, if you've ever heard of them. We interviewed uh, a guy by the name of Dennis Eckhart um, last August 22nd, I think, that show, where uh, Braver's, uh, Braver Angels is, is a national citizens movement uh, that was started uh, back around 2016. 
And its purpose was to bring together people, liberals, conservatives, you know, whatever, and uh, to have face-to-face meetings. Now, uh, obviously, COVID has kind of put the kibosh on a lot of that. Um, and right. I think it's hard to do those kind of meetings over Zoom. You really have to be in the same pers- same room as that person. Um, but anyways, that, that is an organization that's dedicated to that. And, and th- th- this guy that I talked to, the, uh, Dennis Eckert was a very interesting person because I always take him as, or I took him as being a fairly conservative, perhaps not conservative to the point of being Trumpian, but conservative. And yet he was reaching out to people that were, um, uh, mothers against gun violence and things like that, sitting down and talking with them and actually working with them. And so that got me to thinking, you know, when you when you go to these school board meetings, and like I say, I've been to a few of them. They're out in L.A. I haven't gone to any recently. But um, these meetings are structured very much in a parliamentary sort of rule sort of uh, environment where you are given some time to talk and that's it. Your time is over. Right. They cut you off after a few minutes. Right. Isn't there a way to run some of these board meetings where you can just say, okay, let's have this side discussion. We're going to sit down for like, you know an hour and a half in this, in this room here and just have the five or 10 people just hash it out, you know, and, and talk and and do some, you know, exchanging of ideas. I would love to see something where in, and clearly like a a, a monthly board meeting, you're not going to have this, but maybe a yearly thing or or a bi-yearly thing, like almost like a board of education town hall Mm -hmm. where it's, you know, advertised to the public just the same way as the board meetings are. Um, and everybody's there. You have to have a quorum because there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of legal rules that you do have to follow. Um, matter of fact, I was, I was talking to some of the board members just about the day-to-day board meetings. You can't even have like a group chat, a group text thread with all the board members, because that would technically be a meeting Mm. and that the public doesn't know about and the public can't attend. So so you yeah. can't like email all of the board members at once. You can't text all of the board members at once or or however many would make up a quorum, basically. Yeah. Um, so if, if you could find a way to structure a meeting that meets all of those legal you know, restrictions, but do it more in of like a, a public town hall situation that yeah. does allow you a little bit more freedom to address things. Um, I will say a lot of them I know the the board won't even respond to each speaker um, afterwards, but rather like the board president is in charge of kind of funneling the response and then emailing each each different speaker or calling them and, and responding to them directly from their comments at the meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think you're right that 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 leads to a lot of stuffiness. Um, it leads to a lot of parents feeling like they're not really engaging with the board, yeah. that they're going up. And they're just yelling at a brick wall and then they get a, an email later. Like yeah, that's, yeah. it's not the most personal, but on the same side, or I should say on the opposite side, you do have a board that probably wants to seem unified. It, they want to um, show that they're working together and that they're making decisions together. Um, and so they all speak with one unified voice. But I do think that there's still, an area there in the middle that you could, you could get together, you could get together with the community and make sure that the community feels engaged and that they feel active and a part of the the kids' education. Yeah. 
That's a good point. I, I, I was just, as you're talking there, I was also thinking about, uh, I've attended a number of these meetings for the county here in, in Jefferson County, Missouri. We had some issues. And so I attended some of the meetings here and it just really struck me how rigid it is. And it really is not made for good open communication. So there has to be a different way. I mean, it, I understand the, the, the vulnerable, or the, uh, the obligations you have, the legal obligations to maintain a structured environment, but it's overly structured. And and from some of these videos I've been watching of parents in these in these meetings, you can see they're very frustrated. And they're and it's like you say, they're yelling at a brick wall because yeah, they're screaming into a microphone, but they're not getting any feedback. They're not able to discuss things. They're just kind of screaming in the microphone, walking away, and you know, the result comes a week later in an email or something like that. That's it just, that doesn't cut it for a lot of people. Exactly. Especially if the result is not the result you were hoping for, right? Yeah. Like it's going to sting even more then. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's one of those things that we were talking about before too, is with showing that we're actively listening. And one of the ways that we can, that one of the ways that you do that is, you know, by engaging with the person right then and there, like, I hear you when you say this, that really strikes me in this way, mm -hmm. but we're making this decision for this reason, even though we know it's, it, it, it doesn't feel comfortable. Like this is why we're doing it. That's a lot different than, than getting, you know, finding out that the board voted against your position. And like you said, getting an email a week later, like it's just, it, it, it feels very cold and, and, and disattached. Yeah. Well, that's by design too, but uh, it really doesn't satisfy uh, the parents these days. Let's go back to COVID real quick, and I want to make this sort of our last topic because COVID has really foisted upon us some really good challenges, and it, it's basically it's the reason why it's hitting a common nerve among parents is because they suddenly find themselves having to uproot their lives and and their careers to accommodate the challenges of remote learning. And I, I kind of, we're talking over Zoom right now. <laughs> I, I've really gotten to hate Zoom. I use it for meetings at work all the time and it just, I'm really getting tired of it. And so I can imagine, you know, I, I raised my son and he was raised and he's 27 now. So he, you know, I never had to deal with this, but I can imagine having to deal with this as a parent, trying to get your kids to watch Zoom and, and absorb things. Uh, it is really, really difficult. And so now the parents are paying more attention to the school curriculum because because they have to get involved. And they're probably seeing how their children are suffering, not only from a lack of education, but from, I think, even just as important, perhaps even more important, is the social isolation, which is absolutely extremely debilitating for a child. So it's easy for me to see how incredibly concerned and, and let's face it, frightened that parents are, are becoming by seeing that this social guarantee of a public education is, seems to be falling apart at the seams. So assuming that you win this next election, what's going to be your approach to helping to mitigate this situation, help to, you know, resolve this issue that the pandemic and our reaction to it has brought upon our children? So first I want to go a little bit on a sidebar mm -hmm. and absolutely mental health is among students and teachers is not in a great place right now and we need to address that um and that's one of the things that you know when i was talking about more support staff and stuff like that around to uh, around schools as well that includes counselors mm -hmm. um i really think that that needs to be a goal and a focus for school districts across the nation right now 
because yeah, students at all levels have just spent a year and a half to two years in a weird isolation mm-hmm. that was very dysto- dystopic and, um, and nobody was in a great place, I don't think. Right. And we're just now kind of getting out of it. And we're just kind of now starting to um, interact with each other again. And for younger kids, a lot of those interacting skills has been lost. Yeah. Um, and, and you have to reteach that and you have to, to readdress some of some behavioral issues that maybe you didn't see for a year or two in school. Um, and now all of a sudden they came back because they spent a year or two not in school. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that that is a focus. I'm just in our community recently, and it's been all over our public news, is there was a student um, who, who took his own life yeah. very recently from the Rockwood School District. And yeah. I know that's not part of Parkway, but it's, it's, it's right next, next door. door. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we need to address issues like that and we need to see them. And one of the ways we can help and we can see that is by having students in school, like, like we're saying, um, and, and teachers are a lot of times that first line of defense. Um, so I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to follow the science hundred percent. We need to make sure that if the community spread is, is rising to a degree where it's, where it's not safe, we do need to, you know, try to mitigate those risks. And with that mitigation comes a, comes a thing that's a hot topic and, and not very popular, but masks and yeah. things like that. Because I think that it's most important to have students and teachers safely in schools. I can tell you firsthand from my wife teaching remotely, teachers don't want to be teaching remotely oh, yeah. any more than parents or students want them to be teaching remotely. Mm-hmm. She did not like it for a lot of different reasons. Um, part of it was she wasn't there to, to not, not literally, but, but metaphorically hold the hands of some of those students that needed the extra help. Sure. Um, she's a very empathic person. And I think most teachers are, and they want to be there with their students. They want to help their students learn. They want to help them in different ways. Um, there are a lot of different ways that kids learn. You have oral students where they learn more by hearing. And when, you, when you're talking to them and, and lecturing sort of thing, that actually helps. You have visual students uh, that learn way more by seeing it. You have mm-hmm. kinesthetic students that are that learn more when they get up and, and maybe that's when the teacher does an activity to to, you know, kind of hammer home a lesson. And that's when it really gets with them because they're up, they're moving and things are making more sense. Um, there's just all and, and there's you know, I think there's like 10 different ways that, you know, uh, cer- certain studies found that students learn. Yeah. You can't do that over Zoom. You know, you have basically two methods speaking and sharing your screen. That's yeah. it. And even and even sharing your screen, you have to make sure that the students are actually looking at theirs on the, the yeah, other on end. Their end. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody wants to be doing remote learning, but I think maybe nobody more than than teachers. Yeah. Um, so I think to to make sure that we can do that in the best way possible is is by taking every precaution possible to make sure that we can stay in school. Um, I remember before they, before they reopened schools, they were reopening bars and restaurants. Yeah. Why do we need a bar if we can't put our students in school? I'm sorry. 
Yeah. No, I get it. I get that it's a local economy. I get that it's a business. I get that there's a lot of parents whose you know income depends on that, but we have to do everything as a community around us to make sure that those students are in school for, for all of the reasons that you talked about, as well as additional reasons like the, the life lessons that you learn in schools that have nothing to do with the curriculum, but that have to do with interacting with your friends that have to do with, you know, just developing character as a human. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that I really think that we lost that we did, we haven't been talking about, but it's, it's something that needs to be addressed. And the best way to do that is by keeping students and teachers in schools. And I think we should do everything possible COVID related to keep students and teachers in schools. Yeah, I can kind of use myself as evidence, which I hate to do. I hate it when people use themselves, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, <laughs> yeah, when I think back of high school, and it's been quite a few years now, but I think back of my grade school, my high school, even college, you know, what are my fondest memories wasn't really learning stuff. I mean, that, that, that goes along with the territory, right? <laughs> Obviously I learned stuff, but, uh, it's the, it's the interaction, you know, that I had with, yep. the, with the other students, the fun we had, the, the great times we had, and it was students and teachers too. We did some crazy stuff with teachers too. And it was just absolutely uh highlight of my life in many ways. And so, yeah, this, this, uh, I, I think that there's this, there's this thing that we robbed our children of in, it makes me think on a more philosophical level. Um, do you think that we, as a society and, and as a and, and our government, was completely unprepared for this pandemic? Insofar as children's education is concerned, you know, and and you, I think you have a to me, anyways, you hit the nail on the head. You, you got to keep the kids in school. So if you have to put masks on them, N95 masks. Yeah, that's a little bit debilitating. But, you know, kids still get to go there. You still get to see the exactly. eyes. You still get to have the good times. You still get to, you know, goof off and, and, and maybe get in a little bit of trouble, hopefully not too much, but enough to, to learn. Um, but I think, you know, it, one of the things that, that really really threw me was, and I didn't appreciate it at first, I very much appreciate it now, is the fact that um, is that you can't learn through Zoom. And you can't no. you can't supplement a child's education that way. So that's one lesson we learn. And, and um, how are we going to make sure that we carry these lessons into the future, not only for future variants of, of COVID, but let's say for future pandemics, which may not be till another hundred years, but we got to carry some of these lessons forward. Well, I think I think we definitely had a wake up call. Um, we were way behind the eight ball when this pandemic hit. Um, and I and I hope that 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 those lessons are learned for the long run and not just a short term. Once we get back to the quote unquote new normal that everybody talks about, we'll forget that all of this happened. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of capital improvements uh, that schools and districts can make um, that does that is going to be very you know dependent on the budgets and the board of education approvals. Um, but capital improvements like ventilation improving, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, making sure that classrooms maybe have a little bit bigger spaces, because whatever pandemic's coming next, it's going to have the same challenges, right? It's going to be what's the transmission, you know, what's the what's the transmission? How how right. easy is it for to spread from one person to the other, and and all of those things boil down to the same root problems that especially a lot of aging school buildings had, which was you got a lot of kids crammed into a small area and 
poor um, ventilation yeah yeah i'm i'm thinking the school that my my wife teaches i think is still like rocking like old school radiators for their heating system and don't have acs <laughs> so it's like yeah you, you can't have that at this point in time and especially when you have a virus like this you know you you need a little bit more space you need better ventilation i mean i think at one point in time um planes and and their ventilations like were weirdly like one of the the best modes of transportation like versus trains or buses or anything like it was just weird to me to be like oh yeah you could be on a plane and fly halfway across the country and that's more safe than being on a public bus yeah. and probably a public school bus and going from your house to the school um yeah. just because the ventilation was so much better in those systems. And so I think that there's different capital expenses like that, that we need to seriously look at and consider. Um, yeah, it might not, you know, seem like it's super important right now, but like you said, we, there's another pandemic coming. We, yeah. we know that now um, we should have known that before this one, because apparently there are a lot of people that was like, no, there's a pandemic coming. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we definitely know that now, and we need to learn those lessons and make those changes right now so when the next thing comes, it won't be so devastating. It won't be such a shock. And it hopefully, you know, the shock that happens won't be a year, a full school year, you know, maybe a couple months or something like that, or maybe just a week, maybe just enough time to divvy out all the uh, PPE that everybody needs and then just get right back into the classroom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as you're talking about crowded school buses and airplanes and such, I, I was just a personal story. I was uh, I took a couple of trips to India some years ago for business. And on one of my trips, I landed there in the middle of the night. They lost my luggage and one thing led into another and I couldn't get to my hotel. So I end up on this bus and it's just like wall to wall people on this bus going God knows where in the middle of the night. I had no idea if I was going to make it to my hotel or not. I'm in a foreign country, half a world away. <laughs> and and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself at the time, I mean, I'm okay with the situation, right? But in a few days, I'm going to get back on that plane and fly back to Los Angeles, right? And if I've picked up anything, you know, I've, I've probably picked up everything that everybody else in this bus has right now, <laughs> which, is, which is probably fine because it's, 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 a, it's a local thing. Maybe they're immune to it. But now I fly back to Los Angeles, I'm spreading this thing. And so the only thing that surprised me, surprises me about COVID is that it took this long for the pandemic, for a pandemic of this of this magnitude to hit us. I mean, it was 100 years, right? And I don't think it's going to take 100 years next time this thing hits. No. And and like I said, I heard enough health experts and, and, and vi virologists um, in the middle of this that were like, no, no, there's this paper that we wrote that said, you know, and within the next 15 to 20 years, there was like this, um, this, percentage likelihood of a, of a major pandemic hitting hitting globally and it's just like wow why am i just now hearing about that and why did the powers that be not yeah. hear about that and do yeah. something ahead of time yeah that was that was why i asked that philosophical question because we basically got caught flat-footed not just us but i mean the whole world got caught flat-footed right. on this whole thing and and we were completely unprepared for it Anyways, we do have to move on. Uh, I just want to ask, uh, yeah, as we wrap things up here, what can people do more? What, what can people do to learn more about your campaign and contribute and possibly even get involved? So first and foremost, Caldwell for parkway.nationbuilder.com. A little bit long URL, I know. Um, but that is, that's my website. Uh, Nation Builder has been a great host, so I'll take the long URL. 
Um, but if you look, if you search Caldwell for Parkway, it should be one of the first things that pops up. Um, on there, you can find out about my goals and issues that I'm very passionate about. You can, heck, if you need to register to vote, I've got a tab where you can get all the information and, and go straight to the Missouri website to register to vote. You can check your registration, make sure you're in the right area. Um, you can also sign up to volunteer. Um, and, and if you want to put a yard sign up with my name, uh, just click on that volunteer button, send me your information. I will be reaching out to you. Um, and, the, and you can donate directly to my campaign via that page as well. Um, and also that's where I schedule, I've got all my schedule events where, where I'm going to be, what I'm going to be doing. Um, so I, I, I've done a virtual town hall where it was just ask me anything. Um, I've done a few different, uh, public speaking things with PTOs and different township groups. So all of that information is there. You can also find me on Facebook if you search for uh, Caldwell for Parkway. And uh, you can reach out directly to me either via DM or uh, the WhatsApp button on my Facebook page as well. So you will literally call directly me at on the WhatsApp. And uh, there's also a link to my website there. So if you can't remember the whole long URL. You can just go Caldwell for Parkway on Facebook, and then you can find my full page. And that's also where I'm doing a lot of posts and and letting you know whenever something pops up that's kind of last minute is on that. So okay. those are the two main ways. Okay. And Caldwell is spelled C-A-L-D-W-E-L-L, correct? Nailed it. All right. Caldwell for Parkway. And the four is not the number four. It's actually F-O-R, Caldwell for Parkway. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Caldwell 4 F-O-R Parkway. Yep. All right. Good. Sometimes people get cute and they put the number in there. So you never know. I always have to spell it out one way or the other. Right. We've been talking with Philip Caldwell, who is currently running for the Board of Education in an upcoming election on April 5. Remember that date, April 5. Philip, good luck to you. And thank you for joining us on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it was great to talk about all this stuff and not just on the local level, but, you know, in the bigger, grander scheme of things. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week. <laughs>